turn back to John 15. You're going to need them as we work our way through. Uh, Most people tend to have some kind of routine that they go through as they leave their house or their flat uh, before leaving. Everyone's slightly different, but they're all uh, vaguely similar. Uh, I'm of the Paul Wilson school of thought, which checks four things. Paul Wilson, when he goes out the door, says, phone, wallet, keys, brain, are the four things. Phone, and he kind of pats himself, says, phone, wallet, keys, brain. Uh, He usually gets three out of the four. I'll let you guess which one sometimes is lacking. Uh, Other people need to check that they've uh, taken their slippers off and put their trainers on. Other people need to check their hair. Not a problem for me. Uh, But there are those general routines, aren't there, that you go through. And if you forget one such item, it usually results in some kind of minor inconvenience. Now, I met a guy in America a number of years ago uh, who, along with phone uh, phone wallet, keys, brain, had to remember canister of oxygen. Uh, He wandered around and wherever he went, on a set of wheels, he carried along a canister of oxygen that went into his nose. See, this guy had an issue that his body wasn't effectively distributing the oxygen that he needed. And if enough oxygen didn't get to his brain, then he could uh, be starved of that oxygen and it would result in a pretty severe brain damage. Now, you're going to remember that oxygen canister, aren't you? Uh, You're not going to lightly forget or neglect to carry that oxygen canister wherever you go. Uh, Phone uh, phone wallet, keys, brain, uh, I'm definitely taking the oxygen canister wherever I go. And that guy could do nothing and go nowhere without it. Now, the purpose of John 15 tonight is for those of us who are disciples of Jesus to realize that intimate connection to him is as important, if not more so, than that man's canister of oxygen. There is the deliberacy needed for a Christian to be desperately dependent, constantly connected, and utterly reliant on Jesus Christ. And so the purpose of tonight is to see that actually he is, for the Christian, more important than oxygen. Does that make sense? Phone, wallet, keys, brain, oxygen. For the Christian, Jesus Christ. Okay? Let me show you why. Let's look at verse 1. Why this desperate need of a connection with Jesus? Well, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now tell me, uh, how is God described in those verses? How is God described? As a gardener, do you see that? And he is a gardener who is gardening for fruit. What is God doing in this world? Well, he is a gardener who is Uh, down in the dirt, on his hands and knees, with his gardening marigolds on, working, laboring for fruit. That is what God is doing in this world. He is gardening for fruit. And so much does he long for fruit, that he will even prune so that things will be more fruitful. Do you see that? God is a gardener gardening for fruit. 
Now look down to verse 16. Not only is God the Father gardening for fruit, look at what it says of Jesus. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Now that is the language of John's gospel for discipleship, what it means to be a Christian. You are someone who has been chosen by Jesus. And why were they chosen by Jesus? What does it say? To what? Go and bear fruit. So not only is God the Father a gardener who is gardening for fruit, but Jesus Christ is uh, calling, choosing disciples, not because they are fruitful, but that they might be fruitful. That is his intention in choosing disciples, that they might bear fruit. I was reading an article this week that said the current generation is called Generation Limbo. We have lots of people who are overqualified uh, for the work that they are currently doing. They graduate from university, they are too highly qualified, can't find a job, and so they're doing mundane tasks. And they're generation limbo because they are purposeless, don't know what their meaning or intent in life is. There is no such thing for a Christian as being in generation limbo. Because Jesus Christ has chosen you for a purpose. Why? To bear fruit. Do you see that? God is gardening for fruit. Jesus is choosing disciples to be fruitful. Let's put more weight on this fruitful stuff. Look at verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And then verse 6. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burnt. Not only is God the Father gardening for fruit and is Jesus Christ choosing for fruit, but actually there is no place for fruitlessness. There's no place for a disciple of Jesus who bears no fruit. So when we talk about this utter reliance, this complete dependence, and this constant connection with Jesus, it is not just that God is interested in saving you. It is not simply that God wants you to endure until the very end. Here is God's purpose for you. That you would flourish in fruitfulness. That you would be overbearing with fruits. Now as a Christian, I hope that you want to know at least two things tonight. If God's gardening for fruit, Jesus is choosing for fruit, and there's no place for fruitlessness... I want to know two things. Okay, what is the fruit that a Christian is meant to produce? And then, how on earth is that fruit produced? That's where we're going tonight. We're going to say, ask two questions. What is the fruit, and then how is it produced? Rob, if you want to click to the next slide, this is where we're going. What is the fruit, and how is it produced? Uh, Firstly then, what is the fruit? Well, there's two varieties. Uh, There is obedient love, and there is complete joy. So first, obedient love. We get a lot of chat in the first half of the chapter about fruitfulness. So the first half is very much fruit, 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 about seven times. Then all of a sudden in verse nine, Jesus starts to talk about love. And the second half of the chapter is love, 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 love. Do you get it? The chapter is split into two halves. Uh, Fruit, 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 love, 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 love. Now, is that a coincidence? Are they put together for no reason? Is it a change of subject? No. 
The point is, the fruit is love. The love is the fruit. What is the fruit that God the Father is gardening for? It is the fruit of love. You're getting it. It's good. See that? It is obedient love. Now, that is not a surprise for us as we've been working through John's gospel. Chapter 13, Jesus says love. Chapter 14, Jesus says love. And so in 15, he says the same thing again. The life of a disciple is to be a life of love. And that is characterized by obedience to Jesus and sacrifice for others. Read with me verse 9. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. See, this love is to be an obedient love. Every opportunity for obedience is an opportunity to express love. You ever thought of that? How do you tell if someone loves you? They will obey your commands. Here's an interesting question. Why did God the gardener put the forbidden fruit in Eden? Ever wondered that? Why would God the gardener place that tree in the Garden of Eden and say to Adam and Eve, don't eat that fruit? You ever wondered that? Well, God had given Adam and Eve such generosity, such bounty in the Garden of Eden, given them life and the whole garden to feast on. How are Adam and Eve going to express their gratitude to the gardener? They need an opportunity to love. And so God generously gives them an opportunity to obey. So he generously places the the forbidden fruit in the garden and says, don't eat that. And so even that opportunity for obedience is a generous opportunity for them to express their love. See that? What do they show by their disobedience? That they love themselves more than they love the gardener. And so they eat the fruits and they show that they are consumed by lust and self-love rather than an obedient love for God the gardener. And we're going to have to wait until we see another man in another garden with another opportunity to love. A man who would be faced with an opportunity for obedience. And because of his love for the gardener, he is going to say, what? Not my will, but yours be done. See, the opportunity for obedience is a great opportunity to express love. See, what what was the primary reason Jesus went to the cross? What was the primary reason Jesus went to the cross? Now, we're probably thinking to die for our sins, to be our substitutes. They are right answers. But what was the reason that he loved his father? The reason he went to the cross was he loved his father and it was the father's will that he would lay down his life for his friends. We, we used to sing that song, um, Like a Rose Trampled on the Ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. Did Jesus think of me above all when he died on the cross? No. He was thinking of his love for his father above all. And it was that that drove him to lay his life down for his 
friends. Amazing, obedient love for his father displayed by Jesus. And so we have great opportunities this week to express our love to the Father. When are those opportunities for obedience going to come up for you this week? It may be that if you are a fresher, it will come in the first pub crawl. And it gets to one in the morning and you're offered that next drink. And right there is an opportunity for you to show your love for Christ by obeying him in that situation. It may come in the privacy of your own room with your laptop in front of you. What is obedience that expresses our love going to look like in that situation? What about the self-sacrificial love of Christ? That he laid down his life for his friends. What about when you get home from work, exhausted, and you slump down on the couch, and all of a sudden your wife pipes up and says, Oh, can you help me with the kids? There's the opportunity for obedience to express our love for Christ by laying our life down for our wife. Or what about when that colleague at work who drives you insane and winds you up something chronic asks you for help? What is it going to look like for you then to say, okay, I'm going to express my love for Christ by obeying him, by laying down my life for this irritating colleague? There will be opportunities this week for you to express obedient love that is self-sacrificial. See that? What is the second fruit then? Well, it it is this complete joy. Look at verse 11. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you. See that? My joy may be in you. And that your joy may be complete. We often think of, well, what would it be like to be around Jesus? And we think, well, he would be compassionate, he would be very kind, he would be a great teacher. You ever think of it as Jesus the joyful? (laughs) The man who just emanates joy constantly. He talks of my joy. Why did, how did Jesus endure the cross? How could Jesus endure such agony in the crucifixion because of the joy set before him. Because the smile of his father outshined the darkness of Calvary. Even though he was known as a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, he was a man of complete joy. And beneath even the screams when he was on the cross, beneath him writhing in agony, there was a confident joy that his father was working for eternal fruit. That he was laying down his life for fruit that would last, your eternal life. Jesus, the joyful, complete joy. See, let me speak to those of you who are in the midst of real suffering, facing suffering face to face. Here is Jesus as a man of familiar with suffering and yet a man with complete joy. Joy because he knew he was assured of the eternal love, the perfect love of his father. And it's, it's not a kind of bubbly surface smile just to show other people. It is that deep soul joy. A contentment in 
the gardener. A trust that the gardener is working and his motives are love. And that there are no random strokes. There are no mistakes. But he is working out of a love for you. There is the possibility through Christ to be in familiar with suffering and yet have a complete joy. Because in Christ, he shows us that he's loved us that much from east to west. The fruit of complete joy, secure in the purpose of the Father, delighting in the intimacy of the Son, and sure that there is perfect joy at his right hand. See, worldly joy, earthly joys, the joys that the world promises are very fleeting. And they can be stolen from us by circumstances or by relationships or by our health. They're, they're like a flower that is picked. As soon as you pick it, it is already dying. As soon as you try and grasp at that earthly pleasure, it is already dead in your hands. And there was a bunch of Americans over came to work with Athel Rennie at his church plant in Leith. And one of them just went for a walk around Edinburgh. And he purposely looked in the faces of all those he passed on the street. And he's an American, so he's very positive. But he, he noticed that in the people's faces in Edinburgh, they, they were almost resigned to a dissatisfaction. Let, let me read you what he said. I, I asked him to send me, to me an, an email. He said... There was a look in people's eyes that seemed to suggest they'd just given up having hope for anything better. They seemed resigned to a lack of fulfillment. That, that might be you. You've tried to eat at the world's tables. You've tried to drink of the world's pleasures. But actually, you're still pretty thirsty. You're still hungry. What they can never satisfy But in Jesus Christ, he is offering a complete joy that is not temporary, but eternal. That is not founded in your self-lust, but is fueled by his eternal love between himself and his Father. There is something better. There is. And it is found in the love of God in Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that at the end. You see these two fruits? Obedient love and complete love. Joy. Now, the second question we want to ask is, okay, if they are the fruit that we're expected to be producing as Christians, how on earth are they produced? Where do they come from? And I almost don't want to insult your intelligence by explaining this, because it is so simple, all right? So let me just read you from verse 4, and see if you can see where this fruit comes from. Verse 4 reads, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Where does fruitfulness come from? Where does it come from? Oh, come on. Where does it come from? Jesus, remaining in the vine. He is the source of all fruitfulness. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Now, there's flowers beneath me. If I was to pick one of those, actually, they've already been picked. They're dying. 
uh, apart from their root, they can do nothing. I've never quite understood why flowers are a romantic gift. You hand someone something that are already dead. What kind of an expression of love is that? But you see, apart from the root, they can do nothing but die. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. He is the source. He is the vitality. He is the vine. He is the nourishment. He is the nutrient. He is the lifeblood. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Remember the guy with the oxygen canister? Apart from him, we could do nothing. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Bogol, nada. He is everything. He is your life. He is your fruits. What is the flip side? Well, to remain in Jesus means that you will be fruity. You will produce fruits. Jesus is, pardon the expression, the fruitiest of them all. And to be connected to him means that you will be fruitful. He was the one who perfectly displayed these attributes, these fruits. His obedient love to his father that went even to the cross, even to sacrifice, lay down his life for his friends. And he was the one who displayed that complete joy that helped him and made him and carried him through enduring the cross. He was the seed that fell into the ground and died that it might produce many seeds. See, when you are intimately connected, you're with, you're in Jesus, you will naturally start to produce the type of fruit that he produced. In fact, you won't be able to help it if you are looking at and admiring and taking in his obedient love and his sacrifice and his joy. You just can't help it. Let me illustrate this um, by picking on Martin Smith. Uh, Martin Smith came to university a couple of years ago in Edinburgh. And Martin is from Manchester. So when he turned up one of his first Sundays, he came dressed in his Mancurian Sunday best, which consisted of kind of trainers, trackies, and a hoodie. Okay? And Martin was pretty hard and fast in his mankness. Uh, sorry, that's not dirtiness, it's Manchesterness. Um, and he was pretty hard and fast that he wasn't going to become like the Edinburgh University students. What was interesting, though, having been in Edinburgh and with Edinburgh people, for a couple of years now, Martin turned up last Sunday wearing one of those kind of quilted jackets. And this quilted jacket even had a kind of shooting patch on the shoulder. Now, I know people in Manchester have guns, but I've never seen them with quilted jackets with shooting patches. You see, Martin spending time in Edinburgh with Edinburgh University students has taken him from Mancurian trackies to Edinburgh Tweed almost. To be in Edinburgh means that you naturally start to become like the tweed that is sitting in the third row at the front. That is, that is Martin Smith in another year's time. Do you see the point? To be in somewhere, to be in Christ, you will naturally start producing the fruit that he produced. And so what is Jesus' command? Well, let's look at it. Verse 4. He says, remain, 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 remain. Verse 5, he says, remain. Verse 6, he says, remain. Verse 7, he says, remain, remain. Verse 9, he says, remain. Verse 10, he says, remain, remain. Do you get the point? What are you to do? Pardon? Remain. Just stay here. Don't go anywhere. Dwell, live, abide, stay in Christ, Jesus says. 
Remain. Abide. Abide in the fruity one. Be a branch in the vine. Now, remember back to verse four, chapter 14, verse 23. Look back to that. 14.23, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, notice this bit, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus and the Father have moved in with you. They have made their abode with you. Don't you go moving out. Abide with them. Abide, stay, remain. Make your home there. Don't go anywhere. Now remember the context. Who has just left? Look to 13, chapter 13, verse 30. The context tragic. Who's just left? As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. Judas went after not self-sacrificial love, but the lustful self-love for 30 silver coins. A fleeting pleasure that led to an impending death. And Jesus is saying, okay, don't do that. Remain. Don't go out. Stay here with me. Remain. There's some of our students, let's think some of our WPMers, you're heading off to university. You may be thinking this is a temptation. Okay, I'm going away, so this is an opportunity to walk away from church and Jesus. Uh, this is our time where we can get away. Uh, a time to walk out into the dark, into the night, and enjoy the fleeting pleasures of the world. Please, please, please hear the words of Jesus. Remain. Stay in him. Connected to him intimately. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from him, there is no life. There is only death. He says, remain. Now, what does that look like physically? Uh, for the disciples that night, it was pretty simple. Jesus was in the room, so just keep your seats. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> but what about after his cross, his resurrection, his ascension? How do we as disciples, how would they live when he is not around physically? Well, three very quick things that all come from the passage. Three things. First, remain in his word. Second, talk to him in prayer. And three, be his friend. First, remain in his word. Look at verse seven. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you. We all know what it is to have someone's voice in our head, don't we? Uh, we all know what it is to be doing something and to hear someone either whispering subtly or booming. I, as I thought about this week, I, I've noticed a couple of voices in my head. Um, some of you are not surprised. One of them was uh, my granny. Whenever I'm walking down a street with someone of the opposite sex, I hear my granny saying, curbside, curbside, curbside. <laughs> Because to be a gentleman, you stand on the curbside and take the splashes. Now, when I went for a run this week, I heard not my granny. I never went running with my granny. But I heard my friend Pete from London, who I used to run with. And Pete always used to say, when we got up to a good temple, in some weird European accent, he would exclaim, the temple is good, the temple. And I, whenever I run, I hear Pete saying that. And Jesus is saying, he wants his voice, his words, to be the prominent voice in your head. 
He wants his words to abide in you so that when you are living, you are hearing his instruction. So that when you are tempted to leave, you hear him say, now remain in me. When you're tempted to proud self-reliance, you hear him say, apart from me, you can do nothing. When you're in the eye of temptation storm, you hear him say, if you love me, you will obey me. And when you've had a day that has been characterized by a self-love and a selfishness, you hear him say, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Remain in him, cherish his word, eat up his word, devour his word, make it the prominent, permanent voice in your head. So memorize scripture, meditate on scripture, devour your Bible so that it is in you and you can remain in him by hearing his words. His word is more important than oxygen as it helps us be that fruity, obedient, loving, complete joy Christian. Second thing, talk to him in prayer. Look at verse seven. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. In verse 16 as well, flick down there. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. That's not an unconditional magic formula. There are conditions there if you remain and if you pray in my name. His words are the words that are to dominate and direct our prayers. There's a good tip for your prayers. You read his word and you turn that word into your prayers, your petitions, your asks. And they are the prayers that he loves to answer. Maybe in the context of this passage, it is, okay, if you pray for fruitfulness, if you pray for this kind of fruit, I'll give you it. I'll give you that obedient love and that complete joy. I wonder if the lack of fruitfulness we see in our lives, in our church, maybe if we don't see obedience or joy, maybe it's a Uh, it means we're not praying. Maybe if we're not seeing fruitfulness as a church, it's because we're not abiding in him, remaining in him. Because those who do, he says he answers their prayers. Apart from him, we can do nothing. I wonder what our prayer meeting would look like, what our youth groups would look like, what our student work would look like if we truly believed that. Uh, Third thing, be a friend. Look at verse 15. So read his words, ask in prayer, and be a friend. Verse 15, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. Do you see what makes a friend in that passage? They tell everything. And Jesus has told you everything. What a friend. I wonder how how you would describe your relationship with Christ. Would it be that inseparable friendship or would it be more of a kind of uh, Facebook friend? Would it be that kind of close intimacy or kind of just a vague association? Facebook has robbed us of the word friend. It has stolen that word from our vocabulary. A friend is someone that you tell everything. What a privilege it is to be called a friend of Christ. We're not to be a Facebook friend of his. We're to be a branch in the vine, intimately connected to everything he is so that we might be in everything we do fruitful. You almost need to pinch yourself that we can be called the friend of Jesus, don't you? 
I sent a friend request this, this week on Facebook, and I immediately got a message saying, this person has too many unanswered friend requests to be your friend. <laughs> I don't have that problem. <laughs> too popular to be my friend. Now, I don't deserve to be Jesus' friend, not because he is too popular, but because I am too sinful. Defined by that self-love, that lustful, arrogant, independence, autonomy. I don't deserve the title of friend. I don't deserve a friend such as Christ who would lay down his life for me. I don't deserve to be cleansed by his word for all the impurity of my lusts. I don't deserve to have a friend who would lay down his life for me, that he would die, that I might be the life that is produced. What a privilege to call the Lord Jesus a friend who has laid down his life for you. What is the result of this fruitiness? Look at verse 8. This is to my Father's glory. Who do you compliment when you see a lovely garden? Who do you compliment when you see abundant fruit on a tree? You compliment the gardener. Our fruitfulness is not, because it is not us, because apart from him we can do nothing, our fruitfulness is to the Father's glory, to the compliment of the gardener. And it's our role in the absence of Jesus to be those who display the same love and the same joy that he had as we are on mission to the world. That they might see his glory in us. Remain, Christian friends. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Remain, remain, remain. That you might produce a fruit, 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 fruit that is love, 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 love. If you're not a Christian, we just love to introduce you to the greatest of loves from the greatest of friends. The greatest of loves. A friend that will not use you, that will not disappoint, that will not be variable in their relationship, but will be a constancy of love. So much so that he would lay down his life that you might not die, but have eternal life. The greatest of loves from the greatest of friends. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we have no life. We're like a flower that is picked that is already dying. Yet to be connected to him by faith is to live forever in complete joy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love the title that Jesus is the friend of sinners. We know that we do not deserve this privilege. We don't deserve a gardener who would prune us that we might be more fruitful, but we deserve a gardener who would throw us into the fire to be burned. And yet thank you that by faith, you have connected us, united us to Christ, that we might bear fruit. Please help us as individuals, as a church, to take those opportunities for obedience this week to express our love for him. Uh, Father, we thank you and love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.